Welcome back to Intergalactic Crack, our Mob Observatory and Planetarium Stellar Podcast. My name is Heather and today I'm joined with my colleague Courtney and this is our third episode of season two. Can you believe we're on this episode already, Courtney? I can because it's a very important episode that we've been looking forward to recording all season and uh, Heather, we have a special guest today. We have Professor Michael Burton, Director of our Mob Observatory and Planetarium. Hey Michael, welcome to Intergalactic Crack. Hello, Courtney. Hello, Heather. Delighted to be on. Excellent. We're really, really (laughs) excited to have you because we have been teasing you as a guest Mm -hmm. since season one. So it's now the time. We're excited to have you on, Michael. It's it's, uh, good to be here. Yeah. So um, I'll just ask a few questions so the audience gets um, to know you a little bit better. So, Michael, when did you actually take up the post of being the director of AOP? Ah, so we're going back in my history now, are we? Yes. <laughs> Always. It's hard to believe. It's actually almost five years ago now. It's, um, yes, it's been a complete, uh, a new, let's just say, a change in life. I, it's 2016, I came to Amar, came from the other side of the world uh, in Sydney, in Australia. And yes, let's just say it's quite a transformation in every uh, sense of the word. Yeah, like I always ask you this, but why Ireland from sunny Australia? Ah, <laughs> uh, why Ireland? Why Ireland indeed? Of course, it's a lovely place. Yeah. But no, um, I mean, to speak a bit more seriously, I was lucky enough to have uh, a couple of, uh, actually a sabbatical in Armagh. Gosh, when was it now? It was 2006. So I guess it was about 10 years, in fact, before the, <laughs> just before the job got advertised. And um, that's when I got to see that Armagh was such a very special place. I mean, the wonderful research, the history, the planetarium, all together in, in that Astro Park. Now, when the opportunity came up and, uh, and uh, I, saw the, I, I saw the job, and of course, I have to also say, I do have a, a lovely wife who comes from County Cavern, and there was a, an incentive there to come across. So the, I, I guess you can put the personal and the professional, they all came together uh, for the job. Oh, that, that's wonderful. And we can say, audience, we have met Michael's lovely wife, Connie. She is an absolute star. Um, so, Michael, just you mentioned research there. Um, I want to know, and I'm sure the audience wants to know, what is your main area of research? Aha, uh-huh, yes. Uh, what do I do? What do I spend my astronomy doing in those days when I used to do research? Because <laughs> things have changed a little bit now. Look, I studied the stuff between the stars, the gas between the stars, in fact, the molecules between the stars. Um, stars, in fact, get formed after the collapse of giant clouds of gas and dust. Uh, they collapse under gravity. Uh, and in doing so, they essentially, they emit lots of radiation that comes out of molecules in space. So I actually started my, uh, my astronomical life as a PhD student, uh, actually in Edinburgh in Scotland, and I was studying the hydrogen molecule in space, the very simplest molecule, and it emits in what's called the infrared part of the spectrum. So I was running back and forth to Hawaii, would you believe, and using a telescope on top of a uh, 4,000 meter volcano in Hawaii to actually uh, study the hydrogen molecule in space. As you do. 
<laughs> Tell you what, that's not a bad placement to be on for your PhD to be going to Hawaii. That must be a change from Edinburgh weather-wise as well. It is, uh, but Hawaii is not the kind of place you expect. Everyone believes to Hawaii is a tropical paradise, but when you're on top of uh, the mountains, Mauna Kea in particular, where the observatories, you're up above the clouds. You're at 4,000 meters elevation. It's incredibly dry. It's hard to breathe. Beautiful, clear, clear air, and that's why mm-hmm. we're there. But in fact, it's 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 not the tropical paradise that you think Hawaii is. Uh, it's it's a very different place. But it's there because it's a superb place to sort of see the heavens, essentially, and, and record the faint radiation uh, in the infrared. Excellent. And I just this is for my own curiosity. Uh, getting used to that altitude must have been tough, being so high up. Yes, and in fact, you never really get uh, um, used to it. What happens is you have to, essentially, you acclimatize. When you're working at, this, at that altitude, you don't sleep at that altitude. You come down. It's a halfway house. They call it actually Halibahaku uh, in Hawaii at about 3,000 meters. And there's a little bit more oxygen. It's still dry, but you can, you, can, um, you can sleep a little bit better. But in fact, to tell the truth, actually, even there, there it's hard. But you're right. When you go up to the summit, what you find is you don't actually think straight. Um, okay. You think you're thinking, but actual fact, if someone asks you, asks you to write something down, you'd come back down and look at what you've written at sea level. You realize your, your handwriting sort of can go to pot. And uh, <clears throat> it's very important to be prepared. But before you go up to the summit, when you're working at high altitude, you really need to know what you want to do. And often you write down in advance because you really do find it hard to do it. And it, after a few days, you, you get better and better. But those first few hours in particular, it is actually very different and quite challenging. My goodness. I, did, I had no idea. <clears throat> Astronomy was so hard to like physically do, but I suppose once you get up to those heights, it would be. Um, now, listeners, we have a question to ask Michael, which is very important and that we have a personal interest in that we did allude to when we're back in season one. Now, Michael was part of the group at the time that decided whether or not Pluto was a planet in 2006. So, Michael, for everyone, did you agree that Pluto shouldn't be a planet in 2006? Ah, well, here's a, a complex story. So it's never quite <laughs> you are. Yes, so the, uh, the famous event was the International Astronomical Union uh, General Assembly, which takes place every three years. It's a meeting of the world's astronomers. And 2006 actually was the year I was doing my sabbatical in Armagh, would you believe? So in fact, yeah. I headed off to Prague, which is where the assembly was. In fact, with Mark Bailey, who was also going. Mark Bailey was the director at the time. And in fact, he was very involved in this discussion because uh, the system discussion of what is a planet uh, very much was his research area. It's not actually my direct research area. So I had more of a passing interest uh, to it. But yes, uh, we came to the General Assembly that year and there's two weeks of talks about all kinds of astronomy and a few uh, business meetings uh, all along. And we were introduced at the very start of that to this issue about Pluto being a planet or was it a planet, which tell the truth, most of us hadn't, weren't aware of at the time. There had been, I mean, that was going to come up for an official discussion. And over the period of the next couple of weeks, we had several sessions where it was debated about the merits of is Pluto a planet or not? And it's all got to do with the fact that at that stage, other objects were being discovered, which looked to be about as big as Pluto, if not bigger, and even further away. Mm-hmm. So it was all leading up to having an official vote on the matter in the very last day of the General Assembly. And here I have a confession to make. Oh, oh! What? I didn't stay for the last day. 
No. no. Because in fact, the final meeting of the General Assembly normally was just a boring business meeting and I wasn't expecting anything exciting. And so I'd actually arranged to, uh, and my time in Amar was quite limited and I actually wanted to get back to Amar to do some research, which was the reason I was away. So in fact, I came back and I missed the vote. I oh my goodness. Well, are we allowed to know what you would have voted or are you going to keep that a secret? Well, what would I have voted? Well, to tell the truth, I was persuaded by the arguments indeed. And it's quite clear now, Pluto is a fascinating object, but is a different kind of object mm-hmm. than the, the eight planets as we know them. So the mm-hmm. IAU did formally change it. It's now called a, also a dwarf planet, if I remember the right word. And, and it's, pro- it's the largest or maybe one of the larger members of an outer belt of objects, which is fascinating in its own right. And in fact, only was a uh, few years ago now, the first mission to Pluto actually passed by and took images. And it showed Pluto as an amazing world, completely unexpected. We thought it was just going to be a lump of rock and it wasn't at all. But it's actually not really a planet. It's... Uh, it's material from the early days of the solar system, but it's not the same as our Earth or Jupiter or Saturn or other planets. It'll always be a planet in my heart. <laughs> but wow, I that is that I have to say that I wasn't expecting that answer. No, that I mean, was a that was a real curveball. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now we just need to know what Professor Mark Bailey thought as well, and I'm going to have to I ask him have to. to leave you to ask. Uh, Ah, uh, Professor Bailey one day. I, he had very strong opinions on the matter, but I think I'll leave them for him to tell you one day. Brilliant. Well, to get on to the actual topic of today's podcast, um, we wanted to talk today about pretty much the size of the universe. And throughout the years since Michael started at AOP, I know we have attended a couple of talks, Courtney and I, where Michael has discussed this particular topic so when we wanted to talk about it in the podcast we thought who better to talk about than Michael so I'm going to ask the first question here Michael and it is a little bit of a history question because it's me so um, the first question I have for you about the size of the universe is when did we start to comprehend that the universe was much larger than we thought well that's an interesting question because I don't actually think there's any simple answer to that I mean, perhaps the most obvious one is we think back to times about 100 years ago when the concept of galaxies, other galaxies came in and we realised that we were just one galaxy in in many. But in fact, that wasn't the starting point of this. Perhaps the most uh, obvious starting point or the one that most people realise is actually talking about the place of our planet Earth in our solar system and was the Earth the centre of creation and then we realised no it wasn't, the Sun actually was the centre of the solar system and we were just one uh, object going around the Sun. But that was, that was that, that's the starting point I would say here but and then over the, over the uh, uh, coming uh, next couple of centuries the realisation that we live in, a, in, a, in, a, in what we call a galaxy which at that point was everything else out there and we were, weren't even at the centre of that galaxy. We were actually a long way from it. Um, so there's a continuous evolution of thought. And basically, the concept of the, the size of the universe is really, in some sense, a, a story of the development of our understanding of astronomy and the universe itself. And that continues to grow and continues to change today. And we certainly haven't reached the, the final viewer consensus of how big the universe truly is. 
That's an excellent answer to that very complicated question. But speaking of like the size of the universe, what units of measurement do astronomers actually use for calculating that sort of thing? Well, I think it, the short answer to that depends on what astronomer you ask. Ah, okay. <laughs> You might not realize this, but astronomers actually, we, we, we teach you when you're going through school and university to use SI units, System International, which is meters, kilograms, seconds. But in fact, when it comes down to the everyday work, astronomers are not very good at using meters, kilograms, seconds. Uh, we often use centimeters rather than meters. We use grams instead of kilograms. But in actual fact, to go further, when we start measuring distances and sizes and, and masses in astronomy, we actually come up with our own units and often it depends on what wavelength band you're looking into. So what I as an infrared astronomer did when I talked about the wavelength they looked at was actually different to what the optical astronomers. I would talk about microns for wavelengths and they would talk about nanometers for wavelengths. But when it comes to measuring the scale of the universe itself, I guess there's two units which are in, in common use. Um, one is light years and the other is parsecs. So light years is the one which is perhaps easiest to comprehend and certainly it's the one that is used in, in, in popular discussions. And a light year is simply the distance light travels in one year. Mm -hmm. Parsec is a slightly longer distance. Uh, and it's actually about, it's about just about three light years, but it turns out to be one that you can work out from geometrical means. And it actually has to do with the scale of the, of the um, the earth going around the sun and using that as a base of a triangle, would you believe, and measuring angles in a triangle. I perhaps won't go into further mathematics, but basically it's geometry. Uh, and it's the best geometry you could do uh, as the earth traveled around the sun and you look for motions of the stars in the sky just because the earth traveled around the sun. And the natural unit that comes out of that is what's called the parsec. And it turns out a parsec is about just over three light years. Okay. Is that, is that uh, just when you're talking about the measurement of triangle there, is that where you, is that a parallax or see, this is where my mind, my maths mind doesn't work, but you hold your thumb up and you close an eye and you That's move your head. Exactly what that is. It's parallax, but this case the parallax is not you holding your thumb up. It's caused by the motion of the earth going around the sun. And in fact, that's a fundamental size scale as well. In fact, for many years, this was the fundamental one. It's called the astronomical unit and it's the mm -hmm. distance of the earth to the sun and in fact measuring the astronomical unit itself was one of the first great uh, global scientific experiments in fact it goes back to the what's called the transit of venus and when venus passes across the face of the sun which happens about uh, every century uh, in fact if you can time when venus goes across the sun you can actually do geometry which helps you work out this astronomical unit, the fundamental size scale. So the astronomical unit is the size scale in the solar system, but it turns out that when you go to the stars, even the nearest stars are tens of thousands of astronomical units away, and it's actually, it's, it's nowhere near big enough. Astronomical unit is 150 million kilometers, but that's still a tiny amount when it comes to measuring the size mm -hmm. of our galaxy. Definitely, um, wow. That's the size is just it, it boggles the mind when you really start to think about it. And, you know, we know that things in the universe are very far away, but we also know that things in the universe are very large. So I want to know this might be a little bit um, not your field of special of expertise, but I just want to know um, what happened to the first massive stars that formed in the universe sort of after that big bang and the cooling period and what happened to them? 
Well, that's, a, that's an open question. It's an area of intense study at the moment. And in fact, it's an area where the, the next great uh, um, telescope to come, the James Webb Space Telescope, which cross our fingers is going to get launched later this year, might start to shed some new light. But yes, what happened to the first stars in the universe? We believed that uh, soon after the universe formed, so this is something like over 13 billion years ago, so therefore, in fact, in distances, looking at events which are 13 billion light years away, we think the first stars formed and they would have been very different to the kind of stars in, in the universe today. And the reason they're different is that the universe was made of different materials, basically made of hydrogen and helium. It didn't have all the heavy elements, the stuff that we're made of, like carbon and nitrogen, that didn't exist in the early days. And our understanding of how stars would form was you'd need to have a much greater amount of material in order for that, a cloud of gas to collapse. So we actually believe the first stars would have weighed hundreds, maybe even thousands of times the mass of our sun. So vastly greater, but at the same time, it turns out that more massive a star is, the faster it goes through its life cycle. Basically, it burns up its energy, its nuclear fuel faster and faster. It sort of live fast, die young, the famous uh, quote from Cobain, yeah. but it applies to stars, absolutely. So these stars might have lasted only a million or even a few hundred thousand years before exploding as titanic sort of supernova, hypernovae, in fact. At least mm. that's what we think might have happened. But in fact, we don't really know because these stars are no longer around. So therefore, to see the remnants of this, we have to be looking back to the dawn of time, essentially. And that's where the James Webb Space Telescope and many other telescopes, by the way, are coming in. They're trying to look back further and further away, which is basically further and further back in time to the era when these first stars would have formed before they, probably before the galaxies came together, but we don't quite really know that they, which came first, the galaxies or the stars. Mm, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, here's hoping the James Webb gets up this year and we learn a little bit more about this kind of thing. Um, so I do have a very big question for you now, Michael. Um, could you give us a scale reference for the size of the universe? No, no big, no big ask here or anything. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, um, let, let me say I can give you one for the perhaps the size of our galaxy. Okay. Itself is actually vastly bigger than the galaxy, but this will. Start. <laughs> so look, let us uh, suppose that our entire solar system is the size of, say, a, a grain of salt. I have a grain of salt, a very large grain, about two millimeters in size, and this is actually going to be. Uh, the solar system itself is actually much larger than the distance to the, even to the planet. So we talked about Pluto. Pluto is actually not a planet, but Pluto is the closest to the, of the Kuiper belt. That's about 30, 30 astronomical units away. I'm going to make my two millimeters about 10 times bigger than that, about 500 astronomical units. So that's making our solar system um, a grain of salt. So the first thing I'm going to say is if we have a solar system with a grain of salt, how far away is the nearest star? Would you like to speculate yourself? How far away might the nearest star mm. be if our entire solar system is just a grain of salt? Wow. The, no, this is where you're putting me really on the spot. I, I I'm maths, brain <laughs> well, the nearest star, we're talking about four light years away. That's right, four light years away. That's right. Okay. I can test you and ask you if you know the name of the star. <laughs> Proxima Centauri. Centauri. Oh, well done. Well done. <laughs> you taught us well, Michael. <laughs> I 
I don't know if my maths brain can actually kick into gear and comprehend the calculation here. So I'm going to leave it to maybe Courtney. <laughs> Thank you for that, Heather. You're welcome. Um, I, I, you see, it sounds like it's not that far away, four light years, but actually that's massive if you're taking into account the size of um, our solar system. Honestly, Michael, I don't know. Could you please tell us? Okay, well, I'll, I'll let you out of your misery. Thank you. About <laughs> one meter away. So, for entire solar system, the grain of salt, two millimeters, two millimeters in size, the nearest star will be another grain of salt, two millimeters across. That's the, the entire solar system around it, uh, and it'll be one meter away. So, that's the nearest star to us. And there's nothing much in between. There's Us nothing the... in between, no, apart from the odd Pluto and things, but even that Pluto is within that two millimetres uh, of, of, of our sun. So now we want to go to the size of our galaxy. So our, ga our galaxy has something like 400 billion um, stars in it. Mm -hmm. So how far would they be apart? Each star would basically be one metre apart from the next one. Well, here in, here in, uh, in, in, in our mar, I have a, a, a little... Um, uh, size of represent. We all in, in Ireland we're familiar with the size of the counties and it turns out that the size of County Armagh, which is about 30 kilometers across, these grains of salt had 400 million, one millimeter apart and actually going up about 500 meters, uh, that would form the size of our galaxy. So our galaxy, the size of our local county. But of course, I know many of you don't come from our, many of our listeners probably don't come from Armagh. So I can tell you, um, you're probably familiar with uh, maybe London, the size of Greater London, which actually turns out to be fairly similar, just a little bit bigger than County Armagh. Or I like to use the size of urban Sydney because that's sort of my hometown. And that's a little bit bigger than London, but not much bigger. So similarly, the size of Sydney or London or County Armagh, our galaxy would basically be the size of that if our entire solar system was this grain of salt two millimetres across. And there'd be 400 billion... Um, grains of salt in that size. Uh, hold on to, I just pick my jaw up <laughs> off the floor. That's, I mean, first of all, the fact that Greater London or Urban Sydney is the size of the whole of County Armagh is quite mind blowing to me as well. We're very small, but 400 billion grains of salt a meter apart from each other in the suspended, County of Armagh, suspended like 500 meters. About that, yes. <sighs> <sighs> The, ga the galaxy is massive. And then if you think about the universe is much more massive. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and in fact, if we actually had the universe itself, our galaxy there, we'd have to have another similar several hundred uh, billion galaxies spread out. It would probably be a region, it would go further than the size of the moon away. I mean, that mm -hmm. would be the size of the universe on, on that kind of scale. It would be it getting out, actually, actually getting out to be not the size of our solar system, but more the, the size of our own planetary system itself. And, and Oh, that is just, that is just mind blowing. I, I, I don't know how I'm going to carry on with my life now, as anytime I drive down to Armagh thinking... The whole galaxy could fit in here if you did this equation. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we're talking about the universe there. My final question is, we know that the universe is expanding. Um, and that, again, is a great area of study. Um, my question is, will the universe ever stop expanding, do you think? 
Indeed, think is perhaps the right word to use because we don't know all these things we don't know. But look, mm -hmm. at the moment, our current best understanding of what's happening is not only is the universe expanding, but the rate of expansion is actually speeding up. In other words, it's accelerating. So the distant galaxies are actually getting away faster and faster. The further away they go, they're accelerating. Why? That's the, perhaps the biggest question in science today. We speculate there's something called an unknown thing called dark energy, some kind of <sighs> mysterious force. But when astronomers start using the word dark, it really means they don't actually understand what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. Some so, truth so, there from an actual astronomer. <laughs> yes. So, so really we don't know the ultimate future. But yes, our current understanding is certainly the universe is expanding. It's going faster and faster. But underlying this, there's actually a, an immense amount of lack of understanding about the nature of some of the fundamental things like the forces of nature. Uh, indeed, about if we turn it into the actual mass density of the universe, about two thirds of the universe in terms of, sort of energy density would be for this form of dark energy. The stuff that we're made of, the ordinary matter, the stuff that stars and planets and you and me are made of, makes up a mere 5% uh, of the sort of mass energy density of the universe. So we're a tiny part uh, of, of the whole universe. Uh, so we have a no real understanding of this, 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 this unknown, this dark energy, and something else called dark matter, which I haven't even touched upon. Um, these are things which, which uh, astronomers are going to continue to explore uh, in the years ahead. If you want to know more about dark matter, we talked about Vera Ribbon in uh, season one of Intergalactic Crack on our five amazing women in science you should know about. Um, wow, that was, Michael, that was, um, that was really something. I, my mind is truly melted here. I don't know how I'm going to continue on working today. <laughs> Give me a lot to think about. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, because indeed, these are the big questions of, of life, the universe and everything. Ah, wow. Um, well, we've actually come to the the end of today's record. Honestly, I could sit here and talk to you for a lot longer. But Michael, I know you're you're a busy guy, so we're, we're going to let you go. But um, Courtney, do you want to remind everyone how they can get in touch with us here at Intergalactic Crack? Yes, so um, we're available on all podcast platforms. You can leave us a comment on Instagram, Facebook, and also we're on Twitter at Arma Planet. Um, furthermore, if you want to send us a wee bit more information, maybe some questions, some topic you'd like to cover or a feedback, maybe, um, you can email us podcast at arma.ac.uk and that will get straight to us. Brilliant. And don't forget to leave us a review wherever you find us on whatever podcast platform you are on. Um, I do have one final question for Courtney here today. Um, Courtney, do you need some space? Oh, geez. Um, that's a very difficult question for me to answer. Um, I might pass this uh, question and let uh, Professor Michael Burton field this question for me. Michael, do you need some space? Do I need some space? Well, I believe the universe is still growing, so I think we all need some Excellent answer.
The Arma Observatory and Planetarium is a registered charity and part of the Northern Ireland Government Department for Communities. To find out more about AOP, follow us on Facebook, Twitter at Arma Planet, Instagram at Arma Planet, YouTube at Arma Observatory and Planetarium, or check out our website where we host our blog, Astronauts, www.arma.space.